0: Have you ever made $741,000 in a day? Probably not, unless you're a quite rare individual. How about, have you ever made $740,000 in a matter of minutes? You know, maybe about an hour. Even rarer air. <laughs> Probably not. You know who did? Michelle Obama. This is Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. A lot of folks simply don't realize that the problems in their life, the problems in our society can actually be traced back to globalism. When I was a young man, I was one of six children. My father didn't make a lot of money. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood where most families supported themselves on a single income. Uh, Not in luxury, but comfortably in the United States. That is simply impossible for the vast majority of Americans today. So something changed, and, and we hardly talk about it. Right. It changed dramatically you know, just in my lifetime. As a former Wall Street guy, I believe in evidence and data. The political world is full of sloganeering. Uh, it's full of a lot of folks who make very grandiose statements, but don't back or cite those statements with evidence, with evidence and data. When that orange guy came down the escalator, he won me over, largely with his uh, correct assessment that globalism was harming Americans, particularly China. Uh, He saw it and he indicted it. And he and I spoke many times about trade issues, about globalism more broadly. When, when, When we view what is happening to us, when we view the injustices and the outrages that are happening in society, we need to look behind the surface level. Many of the ills that afflict this country can be traced back directly to globalism. Housing affordability, it has never been worse the globalists don't believe in strong borders. They see cheap labor. This sick and demented idea that children should have their sexuality, their their sex changed permanently. It's super important for us to see when when there's when there's an injustice, when there's an abuse, when there's a crisis. What is behind the crisis? Who is behind the curtain? Headline from the British publication the Daily Mail. Paid 740 to give a speech on issues of diversity, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, which has become, of course, a a buzz phrase, but much more than a buzz phrase. It's a worldview and a worldview which has serious effects upon your life and very negative consequences for our society. Now, uh, aside from the the race hustle element here, and that's the main thing that I want to speak to you about today is to dive into this issue of the race hustle and the myth which is being propagated again and again that America is a systemically racist country, which of course it is not. But the, the consequences of spreading that myth and what it means for your life, because the fallout is incredibly significant, unfortunately, and particularly so for your children or for your grandchildren. As an aside, though, too, regarding this speech for Michelle Obama, somebody might ask, you know, what the heck are they really buying? I mean, obviously, the speech itself is not worth three quarters of a million dollars. What are they actually buying? Are they buying access to perhaps the real power behind the throne? Are the Obamas really, in many ways, directing the affairs and the decisions of the Biden White House? I think that that is a a theory which finds a lot of support And a lot of evidence in the world, not just some wild conspiracy theory that in many ways, the Obamas, who literally moved down the street from the White House, didn't leave Washington, D.C. the way most presidents do. As a matter of fact, the first president since Woodrow Wilson to stay in Washington, D.C., perhaps they stayed in Washington in more ways than just residentially uh, stayed there in terms of the power structure. So that might be one aspect of what's being bought there. But I think also what's being bought is, is credibility. And by the way, this is a foreign host. But nonetheless, the reason that these foreign hosts are willing to pay this kind of price for Michelle Obama, you know, outside of perhaps again gaining entrance and and uh, gaining Korean favor with the with the perhaps power behind the throne of the current White House of the United States, the other reason is to buy credibility in the world of the race hustle, in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the paradox here. The really, in some ways, disgusting paradox is that Michelle Obama herself regularly claims that America is a racist country. As a matter of fact, she said that when her husband was elected, that it was uh, the first time she was proud of her country, proud of the United States. Now, let's let's think about that for a moment. Let's look at her life. Uh, She grew up in Chicago. Not in prosperity, but in comfort. Her son, her father, a uh, a relatively well-paid civil servant through her own smarts and intellect and hustle, got herself to a fantastic high school in Chicago, got herself to Princeton University, and she and her husband are now worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They are generationally wealthy, and of course, her husband, the first black president of the United States. None of that sounds like a country that is systemically racist, or at least if we are, we sure aren't very good at being racist, are we? If we grant that kind of power, if we reward that kind of, of mountain of money to the perhaps foremost black couple in all of America and you know perhaps all of the world, not a very racist country, not a systemically racist country, is it? But nonetheless, contrary to the evidence, contrary to the reality on the ground in our country, there is an entire business Uh, There's an entire power structure that is based almost entirely on the myth of systemic racism in the United States, and an entire group of people who have very successfully gamed a race hustle to not just enrich themselves, but to also promote and project secular, humanist, leftist, Marxist, divisive policies upon the United States of America. Now, the most recent example and another headline I'd like to draw your attention to, and we're not a show that just lives for headlines. We're not a day-to-day news show. We want to talk bigger ideas and bigger picture, but there were two headlines that I think are interconnected here and matter, and they point to a very bigger picture issue of tremendous importance to your life, this, this race hustle and this myth. The first was the Michelle Obama speech, which I think was pretty attention-grabbing, even if corporate media wanted to ignore it. The second is Ibram X. Kendi. And if you don't know who he is, you should, because he has more influence on your life than you might be aware of if you're not aware of him. Ibram X. Kendi, somebody uh, who was born Ibram Henry Rogers, by the way, a far more (laughs) anglicized, American-sounding name. He wanted to make it sound as African as possible, so he changed it. That was only part of the scam of who Ibram X. Kendi is. Recent headlines have revealed that his center, his think tank, as it were, I don't really want to call it that because there wasn't very much thinking going on, but his center to fight racism at Boston University at a very revered, august, highly selective American university. It's announced that it is engaged in mass layoffs that they have produced almost zero scholarship, despite donations of as much as $40 million into the center to fight racism that he is supposed to be heading and which is supposedly going to do the work of attacking the white, bigoted patriarchy that rules the United States. All evidence to the contrary. Here is a Fox News clip on that unfolding news at Boston University activist Ibram X. Kendi already laid off half his staff earlier this month, but now BU's official inquiry is putting Kendi's entire operation under scrutiny. Our next guest, Chris Rufos, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. So this research center received tens of millions of dollars in donations, Chris, but only produced two original research papers. Sayed Agrundi, who is a Austin University sociology professor, who was affiliated with the center, said, quote, commensurate to the amount of cash and donations taken in, the outputs were minuscule. So a lot of people are wondering, where'd all that money go? Where'd all that money go? It's an excellent question, isn't it? Where did all the money go, Henry Rogers? Ibrahim X Kendi, are you going to tell us where all the money went? And here's the thing, Patriots. It's, it's much bigger, much, much bigger than just a grifter or two or three who are effectively stealing money. It's much bigger than that. There is a much wider, deleterious, nefarious effect on American society of this fixation of the American ruling class of big business, the academy, the administrative state of government on purported, invented racism. It extends way beyond the scam that has been perpetrated by Ibram X. Kendi. By the way, he's had a partner in crime in a lot of ways, somebody who you also may have heard of, and if you haven't, again, you should. And it is a woman, a white woman named Robin D'Angelo. She wrote White Fragility, which became a bestseller, largely because it was required reading at all kinds of American institutions. And I know that factually at American prep schools, Universities, corporations, "White Fragility" by Robin DiAngelo became required reading, and she became a supposed authority on fighting white privilege. And she, alongside Ibram X. Kendi, his book is titled "How to Be Anti-Racist." And of course, it only makes sense to be anti-racist if there's pervasive racism, right? Otherwise, the book would have no, uh, no, no buy-in, no, no relevance for American society. The two of them appeared recently on – actually, no, this one, this clip is not recent. But the two of them, the the news on Ibram X. Kennedy is recent. But the two of them appeared – this is from back in 2020 on CBS News where Ibram X. Kennedy was, of course, named a contributor. And let me tell you this, by the way, as a quick aside. Being named a contributor at a major national network is not easy. I know it because I think I'm the only person out there who has been a contributor to all three major cable news networks. Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. I think I'm the only person out there who has done, who has pulled that feed off, that trifecta of being a contributor to all of them. It is very difficult to get those positions. They are highly sought after because of the national attention that you get, because they are generally lucrative. These are tough gigs to get. Very tough gigs to get. Even more so at a regular network, not a cable network, regular network like CBS News. But Ibram X. Kendi, Henry Rogers, got this. Uh, after writing his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And let's listen to what the two of them have to say. Ladies first. I'm sure she would cringe at me saying that. She would probably call me patriarchal, Robin D'Angelo, for saying ladies first. But let's go first by playing the clip of Robin D'Angelo and her views on race on CBS News.
1: Robin DiAngelo is a sociologist, and she's author of this book, White Fragility,
0: Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. I love this title. She joins us with the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, CBS News contributor Ibram X. Kendi. Both of them join us this morning. Good to see you both. Robin, I'm going to start with you. In your book, you write this, unless white people have ongoing and intentional
1: study, their their opinions will be uninformed and ignorant.
0: Uh, I read that and I thought, whoa, very blunt language. So I would like you to explain what white privilege is exactly and why white people have such a hard time seeing it because it's so clear
1: to most black people I know. Certainly, and thank you for having me. White privilege is the automatic, taken-for-granted advantage bestowed upon white people as a result of living in a society uh, based on the premise of white as the human ideal.
0: White as the human ideal. Did you hear that from Robin DiAngelo? From the the author of White Fragility, white as a human ideal. What world does she live in? Does she believe in 2023 America or in 2020 when she said that in in the 2020s that there are any institutions of consequence in this country, that there is even one that is promoting whiteness as a human ideal? You have to live in a fantasy land to believe that. Now, I don't think she believes it, probably not deep down in her bones, but I do think that she recognizes opportunity here, that she views spreading the myth of pervasive systemic racism, that she views uh, depressing white people and making them feel bad for their whiteness, making them feel guilty for an immutable characteristic over which they had no control, which is, of course, the definition of. Bigotry right is to is to demean someone to in any way make them feel inferior for something they can't control because of the color of their skin or the color of their eyes uh, you know anything like that right their country of origin uh, she sees there in that guilt in that shame that projected shame opportunity opportunity for her personally to become wealthy and important and powerful, but much more importantly than that again, the scam is not the The scam is real, and the scam needs to be identified and and castigated and, and called out. But the scam is not the point. The point is what the scam leads to. While these folks get powerful and wealthy, they are inflicting a worldview that is punishing upon America, that is unbelievably divisive upon our country. It is corrosive to our character as a people. And if we don't stop it, it will absolutely overwhelm us. And it will turn us into a balkanized society that has turned on each other. That is not a place where we want to live and not a place where America has been for many, many decades. Let's continue, though, with this same clip. Uh, her partner in crime, Henry Rogers, Ibram X. Kennedy. Let's play the next clip on CBS News. Ibram, you've said that to get to end white privilege... You have to you have to deal with racism first, right? Yes, yeah, and I mean, as as Robin you know talked about, it it it, it is critical for for white people, for people uh, in general, to to stop denying their their racist ideas, to stop denying the ways in which policies have benefited them, to stop denying their racism and to realize that actually the heartbeat of racism itself is denial. And the sound of that heartbeat is I'm not racist. <laughs> and there it is from Kendi. Stop denying that you're racist. If you deny you're racist, it means you're racist. <laughs> it's sort of like Monty Python. Uh, and I don't love the Monty Python movies. I never really have gotten British humor to be honest, not my thing, but obviously a lot of people love those movies, but it's the old, uh, Monty Python, uh, Movie, I think it was Life of Brian or whichever one it was, where they say, Well, only the Messiah would deny being the Messiah. <laughs> he says, I'm not the Messiah. Only the Messiah would deny being the Messiah. It's the same principle here. Like, well, only a racist would deny being a racist, but, but I'm not racist. Well, that means you're racist, according to this ludicrous, circular, quasi logic. I don't want to call it logic, but logic in quotes of Ibram X. Kendi. But again, this is much bigger. I'm not calling this out simply to highlight the illogic and the lunacy and the corruption of people like Robin D'Angelo and people like Ibram X. Kennedy, or even far more important people like Michelle and Barack Obama, but rather to point out that they are using and exploiting race as a cudgel, as a weapon against America, against you, against your children to achieve larger aims. They are not content with $740,000 speaking fee. They're not content with a best selling book with a CBS uh, news contributorship. All of that is gravy to them. All of that is welcome. And believe me, they, you know, like a pig and slop, they will wallow in the, in the benefits of pushing their race hustle. But that's not the point for them. The point is much bigger than that. The point is to push Marxist ideology and to divide American society to the point where they believe that they can seize control over the levers of power in our country, and in many ways, they already have. That's the reality. That is the reality of the race hustle in America. So let's break this down, if we can, into three parts. And I think this is really important for all of us to talk about, to think about, to study about, and then to take action. Let's talk about three parts of it. The first is this purported white advantage, you know, supposed white privilege. Let's, let's dig into that and what that means and why it's a myth. Let's talk about this aspect of denialism. Denialism, by the way, is a loaded term, right? Because it, it almost always has a, a connection, a connotation that involves the Holocaust because there are people out there who deny that the Holocaust happened. And that's a reprehensible stance that is totally unsupported by evidence in history. But de- denialism, just the term alone, it immediately evokes, and it intends to invoke by these leftists, a connection to, well, you're a Nazi, essentially. Don't have to call you that, but if you if you're denying your racism, if you're a denialist, uh, there's a Nazi element to you. So so recognize that. But we'll we'll dig into that. And then the third thing is let's talk more about the reality. You know what's the reality of these scams? What's the reality of these scams? And what are the tangible, real world ramifications of granting power of allowing these scams to be perpetrated and granting power to these folks who push this lie who pushed this very grand lie from Michelle Obama to Ibram X. Kennedy to Robin DiAngelo to the ridiculous and ahistorical 1619 project. And unfortunately, I could go on and on with far too many examples uh, to cite here, but all of them really, really important. So uh, is there a white advantage? And here's where I'm going to get. I, I don't believe in personalizing everything. I just think it's, it's wrong when you're talking about matters of policy, public policy, philosophy, politics. Not everything should be personalized. But I do want to personalize this a bit and tell you, when it comes to this purported white advantage, the reality is the exact opposite. And I know this personally. Uh, it is completely advantageous in American society in 2023 to be a person of color or to be part of any, you know, quote, protected minority group. It doesn't just have to be about ethnicity or skin. But I know this as an Hispanic. Doors have been opened to me. Opportunities have been granted to me. Favors have been done for me specifically and largely, if not only, because my last name is Cortez and because my ancestry is from Latin America. And that is the truth. It is 100% an advantage to be a minority in America in the 2020s. Now, was that always the case? Of course not. Does America have a terrible history of slavery, of the worst kind of human subjug- subjugation? Of course we do. And it's something that we fought a civil war over to rectify. And it's something that we continued to struggle in other ways, culturally and politically, to make right throughout the Jim Crow era. But the reality is, and this is key, into, say, roughly the 1970s and 1980s, There was no longer any kind of systemic discrimination in the United States in terms of the discrimination of law Okay, that had ceased to exist. And it took a great struggle by generations of people, many of them amazing, heroic black citizens of the United States, a lot of churches, a lot of different people and, and forces and movements involved in bringing America to a place where racial reconciliation was a reality and where the laws... Were no longer in any sense systemically discriminatory in the United States, but there were many on the left, unfortunately, who earned their livings from racial grievance, who derived their power from race hustling, and were not content with the reality of an America that wasn't any longer culturally, legally, systemically racist in any way, and so uh, they viewed it as their mission to foment to invent a reality where, no, 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 America is still racist. It is still Jim Crow. It is still slavery days in the South of the United States. And we're going to invent that, and we're going to project it upon people, and we're going to make you feel terribly if you don't agree with us, and we're going to guilt your kids into agreeing with us. Okay, That is the reality, and I can tell you personally, and I think anybody who's honest will admit this. Any minority who's honest will admit this. The opposite is true today. It is absolutely an advantage to be a protected class person in the United States, to be a minority in the United States, to be black or to be Hispanic in the United States. And especially if you're either of those plus a woman, um, you are advantaged in the United States in education, in employment, culturally in all ways. This is not remotely, not remotely a systemically racist or bigoted country. In fact, it is the opposite. I believe the most disrespected people in American society today happen to be traditionally minded, straight, Christian, conservative, white men. They are the ones who, if anything, are disadvantaged in many ways in American society. And by the way, that doesn't mean that I want to get on... on a, a racial hustle horse there and advocate for them for special privileges and carve out. No, not at all. I'm just saying that is the on-the-ground, on the tangible reality of American life. And again, I think anyone who's honest will admit that and knows that from their life. Now, you know who to at least a degree admitted it? I don't think he intended to. Uh, is Ibram X. Kendi himself. He admitted regarding education. What an advantage it is to be a minority. And here's how he did it. Let's listen to a clip from Charlie Kirk's show and Jack Pasobic as guest on Ibram X. Kendi.
1: What he had actually said was he found us, he said, he tweeted out this article that said, more than a third of white students lied on their race about college lie about their race on college applications, and then half of those applicants lied about being Native American. More than three fourths of the white students who lied about their race were accepted. So then I wrote, Ibram X. Kendi just accidentally admitted that minority uh, applicants have a better chance of getting That's into right. into college. Deleting his tweet, thereby debunking his entire life's work. In just one tweet. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> then I, yes. Then then Kendi goes. He, he goes back and me. They're lying about what I said. I, I post a tweet about ex- which shows exactly what he says. Then he, says, then he replies with this. Here is their tortured line of thinking. Uh, when white applicants think they have an advantage. About lying about being a person of color. Then that means they do have an advantage. So that means that structural advantage doesn't exist.
0: And there you have it. Ibram X. Kendi uh, deleted the tweets, but the tweets were saved by Jack, thankfully, and revealed that, of course, it's an advantage. If it weren't an advantage, why would any white students at all, much less a large number of white students in America, lie and claim that they're minorities to get into college? As Henry Rogers Ibram X. Kendi himself admitted, albeit briefly, <laughs> before I think he realized. His error and then swept it away. Of course, it's an advantage. If it weren't an advantage, these white students wouldn't bother to lie and say to the minorities when they when they in fact are not. Okay, but it's again, it's it's bigger. That's an important aspect, university admissions. But it's much much bigger than that. So let's get to this. You know, supposedly, uh, supposed denialism. Uh, this idea that again, you cannot deny that you're a racist or proves that you're a racist, trying to put you in some sort of ludicrous box. It's like the Salem witch trial, right? Like, well, if you drown, I guess you weren't a witch, but you're dead either way because we're going to kill you if you you don't drown, okay? Uh, That's the reality. Let's talk about what the left has actually done for minorities because I think this is important, right? For those of us who are not racist, which is almost all Americans. By the way, too, it's almost impossible to find a racist American under a certain age, you know, say under the age of, 75. I mean, it's damn near impossible to, to find a bigoted American under a certain age because, again, the battle was being won. I say was in past tense, though, because I'm going to get to this. I, I fear that the tactics of these race hustlers are actually at at some point going to stoke a revival of racism, but the the, the battle was largely won, and because of that, generationally, if you look, and it, this isn't just anecdotal. We can see this in polling, for example, polling of uh, you know, do you approve of interracial marriage, which used to be actually a very controversial subject in American society, all the way really into about the 90s when you look at the polling, and then it just completely flipped, and it's not controversial in the least in American society today, and especially among young people. I mean, it's absolutely irrelevant; it's a non-issue um, among young people in the United States. But let's let's talk about what. The left does when they have the reins of power and what they actually do to minorities. At the same time, concurrent to them race hustling and inventing a myth that America is systemically racist and that particularly we on the right harbor some sort of ill will toward minorities. That, By the way, that's a reality that the the minorities themselves are rejecting, uh, thank goodness, Uh, particularly among Hispanics. The right is winning over massive converts politically among uh, Hispanic Americans, but while the leftist power brokers are trying to race hustle, at that very same time, they are gravely harming the interests of the supposed people that they are the people that they are supposedly advocating on behalf of. And let's look, for example, I, I very uh, rarely would give you uh, a quote from one of my own articles, but I'm going to give you a quote from one of my own articles. The reason being, in that article, I give the citations, and I actually wrote this Uh, Several years ago, but it's just as relevant today about what happened uh, to minority, to, to race relations in the United States while Barack Obama was president of the United States. By the way, one quick economic aside, when Barack Obama was president of the United States, first black president, again, I think proving that we're not systemically racist, but first black president of the United States while he was president, while Joe Biden, the current Oval Office occupant, while he was vice president, black Americans lost. according to Fed data, lost 30% of their wealth during those eight years. And that's all eight years. So I'm not just punishing him for the financial crisis which he inherited, admittedly walked into a terrible situation. But white wealth recovered incredibly quickly after that and in fact saw significant gains over the eight years that Barack Obama was president of the United States. Black household wealth, median wealth went down 30%. That is a crash while there was a black president of the United States but as bad as the economic data is I think even worse than that is what happened to race relations as I point out here so in polling from New York Times and CBS as I point out in my article when Barack Obama took office and with Joe Biden as his vice president in 2009 after winning the 08 election 66% of Americans said race relations are good Not a bad number. I think it should have been higher. But regardless, two-thirds of Americans say race relations are good. By the time he left office eight years later, through incredibly divisive tactics and constant race hustling, it had flipped almost exactly. 69% of Americans' New York Times CBS News poll said race relations were bad. From 66% saying race relations were good, to 69% saying they were bad during the tenure of the supposed, according to the left, the supposed savior of Black America. So, Black Americans became demonstrably poorer while Barack Obama was in office and Joe Biden as his vice president. And overall, race relations massively deteriorated and completely flipped from a place of general comity and agreement. And, and reconciliation to a place of acrimony and, and a contentious standoff. Why? Because Barack Obama throughout his presidency engaged, not quite as glaringly, but he engaged in exactly these kinds of race hustle tactics, as we see from Ibram X. Kendi and from Robin DiAngelo, um, and unfortunately, from his very own wife. His very own wife, who again, just gave a speech for $740,000 for a single speech. I do a lot of speaking, folks. I love public speaking. I think it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to try to spread the message, to try to win converts to our movement, politically, culturally, and otherwise. Uh, I get paid for them. I am a capitalist. I fully believe in that. Uh, The idea of making $740,000 for somebody who's never held office, right, who has never held office, it's one thing for an ex-president, for somebody who's never held office. Is really quite incredible. Not to mention the reason she's getting that is because of her husband ascending to the presidency. And by the way, let me just say this too. I, I think Barack Obama, I think the fact that America elected a black man as president of the United States is a great achievement. It's a great achievement for him. Okay. I won't say much positive about him, but I will say that that is a great achievement for him. It's a great achievement for our country, right? That, that uh, you know, a century and a half after viewing black people as property. Right as as property to be managed or even abused. Century and a half after that, this country elected a black man as president of the United States. That's an incredible accomplishment. It's an incredible accomplishment for him. It's an incredible accomplishment for this country. And it was an opportunity. It was a, it was a tremendous opportunity for him to to really move again. I, I think we had largely achieved racial healing anyway, particularly among young people. But it was a chance for him to really move that that agenda forward to really advance that ball. And he did the exact opposite. Instead. Uh, for selfish reasons and for, for for power and for self-aggrandizement, for near-term power po- uh, politics, he decided to go in exactly the other direction and to constantly accuse us as a country of racism and his wife even more so. Um, despite the fact that they're now, as I mentioned, generationally rich and his only job experience before getting into politics was being a, quote, community organizer whatever the heck that means. So being a a professional agitator, effectively. Uh, No racist country worth its salt would allow a dark-skinned community organizer, agitator with a very funny, non-American sounding name to become the president of the United States. But instead, we are a tolerant nation. Doesn't mean we've always been perfect. Doesn't mean we've always been tolerant. Clearly the opposite in the days of slavery. Clearly the opposite in the days of Jim Crow. But in recent decades, we have been an incredibly tolerant, open country. And instead of celebrating that, instead of celebrating the fact, and I believe this is a fact, that the United States uh, is the least racist, multiracial country in the world. We are. There's not that many multiracial countries in the world when you really look, okay? But when you do look at the multiracial countries in the world, generally... They are marked by strife, by racial division and strife. Perhaps the worst example I could give you is South Africa, right, where things unfortunately have not improved for most people in terms of their quality of life since the fall of apartheid. doesn't mean apartheid should be intact, but my point is things were bad and things have gotten worse in very many ways, certainly regarding race relations in South Africa. That would be more the norm. It might be the worst example, but that would be more the norm Of multiracial societies generally in the world. The United States is the exception. And I believe firmly in American exceptionalism in so many ways, but including this aspect of of racial tolerance, that the United States is an incredibly open, incredibly loving, incredibly embracing, and tolerant country. And that is the reality to the point where, again, being a minority, uh, isn't just equal status in the United States in the 2020s. In many ways, it is preferential status. It is advantageous, and I have lived that personally, and I know that. And I think everyone who's going to be who is honest with you, uh, who has experienced that, will will tell you the same. And I fear, though, I fear that the tolerance of America, that the appropriate level of guilt, uh, societally—not that any of us has individual guilt, but of of society complicity with what was done in the past. Is, is allowing, is creating an opening that is being very deviously exploited by some really malevolent actors, by Marxists who are using an invented myth of race, of systemic pervasive racism in the United States to not just enrich themselves, that's part of it, that's, that's part A of the scam, but the much bigger part is part B, to inflict their agenda upon American society. And I'll give you a prime example here. Again, I believe in data and evidence. Uh, is BLM, the BLM movement, and particularly BLM Inc. I mean, the organized Black Lives Matters movement, which, by the way, openly stated that it was racist. Uh, Patrice Cullors, the, the founder, one of the co-founders of BLM, on tape saying, we are trained Marxists. That's a quote. We are trained Marxists, a group which also attacked the nuclear family so that it was antithetical to their views, to their secular humanist Marxist views. They, they can't have the nuclear family. And by the way, the breakdown of the nuclear family has done such damage to all of American society, but even worse damage to black society that I can't think of a worse prescription for anyone who truly cares about the health of all Americans, but particularly black Americans, than attacking the nuclear family. But BLM, which took in, you know, I talked about the roughly $40 million that is reported that uh, Ibram X. Kendi brought into his Boston University Center to fight racism. Uh, We're talking about many, many multiples of that. For BLM. And I the reason I don't give you a number is that you can't find good, valid numbers. But what we do know is it was into the hundreds of millions, likely into the billions of dollars, much of it coming from major American institutions. Practically every blue chip company in America, other organizations like the NFL contributed massively to BLM. And it has had similar scandals where it cannot account for how its money was spent. We know an enormous amount of it was spent for the personal perquisites, the perks of the founders uh, and their friends and family members. In short, it has been a complete disaster and scam. And in that regard, it is similar and really, you know, uh, unfortunately related to and akin to what has happened with Ibram X. Kendi, where there's no accountability for this money. But again, more importantly, there's no backlash against the movement that they represent. Now, let's, let's get to this Boston University issue because I think that this is important because the academy in America, I think, and I'm guilty of this, has been too often ignored by those of us on the political right uh, because we have viewed it as just sort of, well, that's just sort of silly town over there and let them have their crazy ideas and it doesn't matter for the rest of society. I think what we're finding is, oh, it does matter for the rest of society because Ibram X. Kendi isn't just sitting in the faculty lounge at Boston University pontificating his nonsense, about supposedly being discriminated against while he collects millions and millions of dollars and is a media darling. No, he is spreading his agenda throughout the power structures of the United States to the point that, um, as I've mentioned, major American corporations are forcing, are are mandating that their own employees engage in sort of Mao-like struggle sessions where they are told that they have white privilege, where they are told that they have done something wrong. Okay, so there are there are real-world, very tangible ramifications from this perverse and polluted worldview that does not stay to the academy. Now, there at least was one very honest person in the academy, and he wrote an excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, How Ibram X. Kendi Broke Boston University uh, by Professor Cosimo, who's an associate professor of theology and ethics at BU. He mentions, by the way, too, that when all this sort of broke in 2020 during this supposed summer of love, remember Lori Lightfoot of Chicago said that tw- summer 2020 is going to be a summer of love. It was ending, but it was a summer of carnage where if you lived in the wrong place, like California, Illinois, you were still locked in your home. When you left your home, you were forced to wear a mask. But, but the supposed, quote, public health authorities and other supposed leaders in society said, protest is okay. Protest is okay. And that protest, as we well know, did not stay peaceful was not, quote, mostly peaceful as uh, Ali Velshi on MSNBC tried to to gaslight us and uh, who said, you know, some fires were set. No, it was a conflagration across America. Cities were destroyed. People were killed. Cops were attacked. Uh, They were vicious, awful riots. And not only were they tolerated by the power structure, particularly in blue jurisdictions, but they were encouraged by. And at Boston University, as Professor DeCosimo points out, uh, they took several days off of school once they got back in 2020 to supposedly study their inner racism as an institution and as students, you know, and and particularly if you're white. Here's some of the, the agenda uh, as expressed by the professor uh, about Ibram X. Kendi. They, talking about uh, Kendi and his forces, they denounced voter identification laws as expressly anti-black and a form of state violence. They claimed Ronald Reagan flooded black communities with crack cocaine, and they declared that every black person was literally George Floyd. Interesting, by the way, that they would claim that that every black person is literally George Floyd. George Floyd died a tragic death, and I think a death that should not have happened and was preventable. But George Floyd lived a reprehensible life, reprehensible life that brought a lot of pain to many, many people around him, both the people that he supposedly loved, his friends and family, as well as complete strangers, victims of his crimes. So the idea, first of all, every black person is not George Floyd in terms of some sort of victimization by police. But secondly, why would they want to be uh, George life? That is not a life, which George Floyd, that is not a life which in any sense is worth emulating. Uh, at all, regardless of how he died. But the professor continues here in the Wall Street Journal, How Ibram X. Kendi Broke Boston University. Mr. Kendi, and this is an important point I think he makes here, Mr. Kendi deserves some blame for the scandal, but the real culprit is institutional and cultural. It's still unfolding, and it is far bigger than BU. Amen to that, professor. Exactly. Kendi, to a degree, is small potatoes. He's important for what he represents. And of course, we should never tolerate this kind of grift and this kind of, you know, perhaps even fraud. It could be criminal, who knows? This kind of absolute waste of resources should never be tolerated. But he's small peanuts in the scheme of things because it is cultural, it is institutional, and it is, in fact, much, much bigger than BU. That is the reality. And I would argue the much bigger organization than Ibram X. Kendi's is the BLM movement. And this, all of this, folks, let's remember this, okay? Philosophically, where is this coming from? Always look next step. Uh, You know, what is the philosophical backdrop? What is the worldview uh, steering this? Who are the people behind the curtain? Uh, In this case, in terms of the ideology, I believe we really need to look at Saul Alinsky, Rules for Radicals, a book that if you have not read, I suggest you read. And it's not fun to read because it's awful, but he is crafty and devious in a very Machiavellian way, and his tactics are alive and well, and in fact, driving in many cases, the Democrat Party of the 2020s and just the secular humanist movement in the United States, uh, which has has formed an alliance with the ruling class. And I would state this too, my strong guess is, I don't know this for a fact, because I don't think we can get them to admit it. But my strong guess is, for example, a lot of these executives who are playing ball with this DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion nonsense, uh, who are trying to make their white employees feel guilty, uh, who are claiming responsibility for sins they did not commit. A lot of these executives at these companies, I think they know better deep down. And I think if we could give them some truth serum and force them to tell us the truth, they would admit as much. However, there's a very powerful fusion going on right now between uh, the administrative state guided by leftist Marxist forces and big business. And there's essentially an unholy alliance there. And, and speaking of holy, I've written articles about this previously. In a way, it's a form of indulgences. That's what I call it. It's corporate indulgences, right? So uh, in the medieval Catholic church, people could pay, particularly wealthy people, could pay indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. And that supposedly wiped away sins. And those abuses of indulgences led directly to the Reformation. Well, corporations, big business in many ways, they're paying indulgences. And what I mean by that is, some, in some cases, it's literal payment. Okay, make a large donation to BLM. But more importantly, it's play ball with them. Subscribe to their worldview. Pretend that our company is systemically racist. Pretend that society is systemically racist. Promote that, those views. Uh, pay for advertising campaigns. Pay for marketing. Uh, promote it within our corporate literature. Make sure that we never put on an ad that's not majority my, minorities. I, I, by the way, I think if somebody from outer space came and watched American television, they would assume that America is about 60% black, about 30% Hispanic, and about 10% white, okay, uh, which of course is not remotely near the actual statistics. But, but corporations, in so many ways, their advertising their budgets, their corporate agendas, their employee requirements are playing ball with the left, not necessarily because the executives believe it, but because it makes business sense. And the bargain then, if you pay the indulgence, it's not the forgiveness of sins, uh, although to an extent it is, it's permission to operate as you like in the economy. And it is favored status, in fact, with the government. So let's take a specific example, the very, very large banks, okay? Play ball, Pretend that you've been systemically racist, that you are systemically racist, that you have this problem, and the government will write regulations such that it's almost impossible for small banks and medium-sized banks to compete with you. And by the way, that happens to be the reality. As a quick economic aside, you might notice the community banks have largely disappeared. The ones that are out there aren't doing very well. And when's the last time that a significant new large bank has emerged? I mean, it hasn't happened in years and decades. Well, there's reasons for that. It's not because there's no entrepreneurial zeal in America. It's because the rules and regulations are so onerous that only the biggest players can handle them. Well, how do they get those rules and regulations? Well, they get it through currying favor with the administrative state. How do they do that? There's a lot of ways, but perhaps the main way um, is by pretending, by playing along with this ridiculous and dishonest game of leftist ideology, particularly as it pertains to race, because that is the the easiest way for them, the quickest way uh, for them to play ball. And by the way, that is the actual definition of fascism, the actual textbook classic definition of fascism. Um, It's uh, unlike communism, which seizes private property. In fascism, there is private property, but it must act at the discretion and direction of the state and in alignment with the state. And that's what we increasingly have In this country is a leftist fascism that operates in the United States and a large driving force of of sealing that unity, that that deal, that uh, that indulgence is race and race hucksterism. That is that is the reality right now in America. So there's a race hustle going on. Be aware of it. Be educated about it. Realize what's happening. Realize what Michelle Obama is doing. Ibram X. Kendi uh, is doing the BLM movement. Realize what all of them are up to. Stop feeling guilty if you're not racist, and that's all of you probably, or almost all of you. Uh, Stop allowing anyone to make your children feel racist. What a reprehensible crime that is. What an injustice to tell any child that they should feel badly about something they can't control, that they should feel badly because they have pale skin, because of their melanin, That's evil. That's downright evil to tell a child that. Just as it was evil in the 1930s to tell that black child that he should feel badly because he has dark skin, it's just as evil to tell a white child in 2023 that he should feel badly because he has white skin or that he is somehow guilty for something that happened generations ago that he had nothing to do with. When the reality in today's American society is if he happens to be a white boy, If he happens to be Christian and straight, if he happens to be politically conservative, believe me, a lot of things in life are going to be quite hard for him. And that's a point I alluded to it earlier where I want to get. I would never excuse bigoted behavior, but I will tell you this. If we continue down this path we've been in our schools, in our institutions, in our pop culture, if we continue down this path of constantly telling that white Christian boy that he's guilty, that he's done something wrong. At some point, there will be a backlash, and you will actually produce the very racism that you are supposedly <laughs> trying to attack, right? You will actually stoke the very thing that you have supposedly uh, professionally vowed to prevent. It will eventually happen. You know, I A mean, beach ball will stay underwater only for so long, but knock it off. OK? Knock it off. We can stop this nonsense. We were at a place of reconciliation not very long ago. We can get right back there and we can do it relatively quickly. So how? Let's talk solutions. If you watch the Steve Cortez show, you know I don't believe in wallowing in the problem. Identify the problem, investigate it, study it, know it, pray about it, and act. And then act. What are, what are some practical solutions? So first is I've mentioned these, these struggle sessions in corporate America and also in the in the school side, CRT, DEI, all of this alphabet soup uh, uh, it's critical race theory diversity equity inclusion although it really should be the other way i mean of course they put the e in the middle but it should be die because it will die i mean it will lead to the death of america if we continue down that road but crt dei it needs to be banned and it needs to be banned by brave executives by great brave school leaders principals teachers but it also needs to be banned in law uh, and this is a place where a lot of conservatives believe in you know only sort of small government solutions folks i believe we are way past the days where the problems that afflict America can be solved with small government. I wish that were so. I wish it were so. I think there was a time that that was true. But this is not the 1950s America. This is not Ozzy and Harriet, okay? There is no way to fight this kind of fascistic, fascist-like corporate power aligned with the secular humanist Marxist left without government power. There's simply no way to do it. So CRT, DEI need to be banned. Affirmative action Particularly as it relates to education, needs to be banned. There have been some small victories here, particularly recent Supreme Court case, but it's not enough to just win court cases because the devils in the details and the implementation is so important. For example, a lot of you probably wouldn't realize this, especially if you happen to live in California. Affirmative action is actually illegal in California universities today, yet it is aggressively practiced. You might say, "Well, how?" Well, because these universities find workarounds, because there's a lot of ways for the bureaucracy uh, to engage in a policy that is actually prohibited if. They are unencumbered, right? And Gavin Newsom certainly is not going to come down on them there. Um, but people can. The, the citizens of California can. And even if California it's unwinnable, it's certainly very winnable in other states. And the red states need to take action here, too. This is, this is so critical. Listen, I certainly hope that right-wingers, that populists win all kinds of elections, including the White House, in 2024. But we can't wait for that. And we have complete control, complete political control in red states all over America, and I mean particularly the ones that are deeply red, where it's not just, you know, slight control, right? But overwhelming control, supermajorities in the legislature, you know, thoroughly conservative governors. Those states, I'm talking Texas, Tennessee, Florida, which is doing a lot of this, those states need to be so aggressive, need to be uber aggressive, more so than they would normally be, recognizing what time it is in America, recognizing that our, our Republic is in peril and recognizing that we need to save it, that we need to reclaim our republic. So a lot of what I'm talking about uh, can be done at the state level. We don't have to wait to win in Washington, D.C. I also think, action item, let's investigate these nonprofits. BLM itself, Ibram X. Kendi, let's investigate these nonprofits. Let's let's put, an, in a proper way, right, Not not inventing crimes, not inventing malfeasance where it doesn't exist, But uh, let's put the the investigative power of law enforcement and the state and tax authorities upon these organizations, because it certainly seems, we don't know for certain, I've not seen clear proof yet, but there's a heck of a lot of smoke, and it sure seems that there's some fire um, of actual fraud and actual crimes committed. So let's investigate it. And I don't mean in a Lois Lerner kind of way, the way she targeted right-wing organizations and simply harassed them, organizations that were doing nothing wrong, but I'm saying take an honest, objective look. Uh, because the signals are there suggesting significant fraud and significant, uh, significant possibly you know, even criminal malfeasance. So the other thing is, you know, I, I think all of us on an individual level, on an individual level, just need to insist you know, personally on, on real racial justice. And what do I mean by racial justice? I mean insisting that in our personal lives, uh, that as much as is humanly possible, we're all sinful beings, but as much as is humanly possible, we will live our lives irrespective of race. Um, that we will judge people, form friendships, form business deals, for, you know all of our interactions will be guided by people's character, as Dr. Martin Luther King wanted, uh, by the content of their character rather than their skin. And I think that is largely overwhelmingly the truth in American society, um, but it needs to be reemphasized more than ever, given the race hustle and given the attempts um, to gin up a, a fake racism uh, for the nefarious aims of these leftists. Instead, we need to show real, genuine solidarity. And that's not a phrase you probably find used a whole lot on the right, but I think we should use it. And, and the reason is because, again, and I'll, I'll close with this, America, thankfully, is the least racist multiracial country on Earth. We are the least bigoted, large, diverse country on the planet. And that's something we should really be proud of. But, but, if we're not vigilant now, I fear that could slide the other way. I fear that could slide the other way. Because we are being so grossly unjust, so unfair uh, to white citizens, particularly young white people. Um, And I I worry about the long-term consequences. But regardless of that, even if I'm wrong there, what we know for certain is that today, right now, think about what's going to happen in the future. Right now, today, there are race hustlers who are taking advantage of the United States, who are trying, if you're white, to make you feel guilty for something you cannot control. And we cannot, as Americans, allow that to continue and flourish as a society. So let's get to work.